Welcome to Office Hours, a podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marcia Chatlin, and the concept is simple. Each week, one professor, me, and one student, lots of conversation. Office Hours, for the things we don't talk about in class. Today on the podcast, I talked to Dellen Ellington, a senior at Mizzou, about life at Mizzou. Hi, Dellen. Hi, Marcia. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. It's so good to see you. I know. It's been a great time in D.C. and in Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it's been great everywhere. So, folks, um, so I met um, Mr. Ellington in March of 2015. My book had just come mm-hmm. out, and I got went back to my alma mater at the University of Missouri to give a talk, and there's this young, exciting student in the audience who was like, black women's history, yes, and then told me the story about your mom and your grandma Mm -hmm. and these incredible black women that Mm -hmm. you look up to and you were like into history. And I was like, this never happens at one of my book things. (laughs) And it was just lovely. And we have been on Twitter and Facebook maybe ever since. And so um, there's a lot to talk about. Why don't you tell us, before we start talking about Mizzou, let's talk about what you're doing in D.C. this summer. So what I'm doing in D.C. is I'm interning with the National Park Service Office of American Indian Liaison Office. Um, And I'm doing a history project on looking at the Native American voices, looking at the Native American voices in national parks. And that stems from the interpretation, consultation, and government-to-government relationship with all the projects that they do. Isn't the National Park Service so interesting? Oh, my God, yes. Um, I didn't know that all, like, the little squares or things are run yes. by the National Park Service. They are <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> like, I, I mean, the Little Rock Central High School mm-hmm. is repping for NPS. Yes. You've got <laughs> all sorts of awesome stuff. And I love, love, love seeing, A, students who are interested in this work, and, B, mm-hmm. seeing students of color actually enter this space. There's not that many of us. <laughs> I, I, I'm aware of that, and I know it, and that's something I know I'm going to go forward in my life doing. Like, okay. Let's see the student colors that I can mentor. <laughs> so are you going to come back to D.C. for the opening of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History in the fall? I want to so badly. Um, I'm trying to make plans. I have, like, a hotel guest. I have, a, like, a hotel room that I um, could possibly, like, share with someone. I just got to figure out a way to get here. Maybe we'll figure that out together <laughs> offline. Um, so you have just completed your junior year at the University of Missouri. No, um, my senior year. I about to be a fifth year senior. I see. Okay, mm-hmm. you're you're gonna you're gonna go a whole one more semester. One more semester. <laughs> Got it. And um, you were there um, for w- what will go down in the history books mm-hmm. as one of um, the most important moments in terms of not only student activism but also about the confluence. Mm-hmm. of movements in in our time. Yeah. And so tell me about what it was like when you first got to the campus of the University of Missouri. Um, as a freshman? As oh. a freshman. So getting first getting there, it, I was coming off a seven-hour lecture from my mom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> about what? So she went to Purdue in the 80s, and she was like, you're going to a PWI. They're going to call Predominantly you- white institution. Sorry. Yeah, predominantly white institution. And they're going. they are still racist. They're going to 
call you the N-word. They're going to do this and that. And I kind of wish that my mom was wrong. And I'm just like, no, mom, you can't, be, you can't be always right. But then within two weeks of being on campus, I was walking through Greektown going to Taco Bell on... Yes, um, I used to live <laughs> in an apartment right by that Taco Bell. So not fabulous on my part. But yes, I know the Taco Bell you're ta- you speak of. And... Um, someone out of the Greek house, um, shouts the N-word, and my friends are like, oh my god, did they just, I'm just keep, and I just told them, let's just keep walking, there's nothing we can do right now about it, and we walked, got our tacos, and they kept on harping on, I'm just like, look, my mom told me this was gonna happen. So let me prepared. ask you this, okay, so your mom was trying to get you information, mm-hmm. and, um, she was right about what would happen Previous to that experience of, um, you know, someone calling you a slur on the streets, mm-hmm. um, w- surely that had happened before or some similar things had happened in your growing up? Or maybe not. Maybe I'm the only one who's like, racism happens all the time. I had never, I had never been expressly called the mm-hmm. N-word, but when my mom got a professorship at Illinois State University, I moved to a predominantly white um, high school. In central Illinois. So you went from being in Chicago in predominantly mm-hmm. black environments to this new environment. Yes. And that's when I really started seeing, like, systemic racism. Like, I was the only black... I was one of six black kids in my class that took, like, honors classes and AP Got classes. It. And it wasn't until the second year I was there that I was in... Um, just regular psychology and I'm looking I'm seeing more black kids than I've ever seen in a class and I'm just like why and then my next class was honors um I forget what class but it was an honors class and I'm going from um 15 to half the class to just two of us and so your mom was I mean I take your mom's a very woke person right and yes. so in your growing up how did your family talk to you about race um, very, we were always very proud. She, my mom always talked to us very proudly about race. Mm-hmm. I remember one time she took us kicking and screaming to Harry Belafonte, but I love her for taking me to Harry Belafonte. Why I were you being him. such a hater? Well, I was like eight and I was you just like, I don't want to do this. You he, I'm like, who's it. Harry Belafonte? She's like, and all she say was, she's, he's saying, Dale, and I'm just like, what is that song? You're a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I was, but... I remember that talk fondly because yeah. it was at St. Sabina. Um, and I he always he said a quote that stuck with that sticking with me since and he's like, One time I asked to buy an apartment or rent an apartment in this building and the manager said no because he was black. So the next day he came back and bought the building. Um, and I was just like, Yes. <laughs> um, and it really showed me how much Black economic power, and just even if you're black and rich and famous, you can still be discriminated against. Got it. So you had your welcome to Mizzou, mm-hmm. and um, what initially did you think about this environment that you had gone to college? Did you think that it wasn't right for you, or what was your relationship to the institution in light of some of these experiences? Um. I don't know. My freshman year, I kind of lived these two separate lives at Mizzou. I was in Mizzou Black Men's Initiative, and so for part of the week, I was like very much just with only black males, which was something I'd never been experienced doing, which was great. But then I also spent a lot of time down in the student center with in the LGBTQ Resource Center, um, trying to really get a feel of my homosexuality and get and really feeling that because I was more so concerned with that part of me than my black side. Your 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 identity as yeah. as gay mm-hmm. versus your identity as a black student. Yes, and so, 
Oh, you made a sound like, and... Well, and I started to see the divide. And even in that, like, because they called the basement of the student center the social justice centers. And in the LGBTQ Resource Center, it was social justice, but the cutie po- or cute queer people of color, queer trans people of color, you really didn't get a lot of representation there. Got really it. was like, I was pulled aside by one of the seniors my freshman year after something happened. They're like, this is the reason why there's a group called QPOC on campus. Um, and it really woke me up to even in like social justice groups and stuff. So my sophomore year and junior year, I spent a lot of time in the women's center, which was so much more, <laughs> um, so much more relaxed and just lovely and just more intersectional, um, because there wasn't people who didn't, who weren't full of themselves. I, I'll say. So this is interesting. Um, and as this is happening, kind of on a personal level, the campus is. I mean, the mm-hmm. the country, the state this campus is also going through these other challenges. So you were a sophomore in 2014 when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. I I was going into my junior year. You're going into your junior Mm -hmm. year. Um, And I remember you were among the students. Um, You, Peyton, and another young woman, the one who was vice president with Peyton. Oh, Brenda Smith-Lazama. Came to me, and I think you each separately said, you know, they really didn't respond to Ferguson here. Everyone had a version of, like, we haven't really dealt with any of this on this campus. And I remember thinking, oh, that's a bad sign. I was like, that's not good because people will remember that. And they told me about the dying at the student center. And so while all of this stuff is kind of happening in terms of your identity, you're in this place that Mm -hmm. is also struggling. What was that like? It was... It was interesting. Mm. Um, I remember being in, because my junior year, there was a lot of really bad things going on in the zoo, and people were threatening places, threatening to blow up the Black Cultural Center and everything. And I remember I was in joint session, um, which is where all, like, the student government, so the um, the Black student government, um, the regular student government, the fraternities overarching government, the sororities overarching government, and like I get on tw- and I get on Twitter and I see that there's a bomb threat on the student center and like they're clearing at the student center and all like the student leaders on campus were on a building right next to the student mm-hmm. center. Um, it, and I can't remember what building that was, but like it's the one right right next to it. And no one had told us. And they just told like Peyton and Brenda and one of the and Warren Davis at the time. And I'm just like, how are you just gonna? not tell people to get more than 100 yards away from a building that's just got a bomb threat. And so Mizzou was going through some things of just basic security. Um, I feel like they were like, oh, these threats happen, so we're not going to be too much. But there was just not a sense of safety. Well, this question of safety, I think, is so important because um, so much of the attempt to discredit young student activists on Mm -hmm. campus is like, oh, safe spaces, you just are being big babies. But I don't think people are aware just that threat of violence and how pervasive Mm -hmm. it is on certain campuses. And so what does it look like or what does it feel like to feel unsafe on your campus? Not knowing if 
I'm going to have a friendly conversation with a random person I'm in line with or something. Or just, like, getting anxiety walking into um, the student center and going through the food court or something. And just be like, okay, I don't know if, like, these people are probably the people on Yik Yak or something saying something. Like, who is this person? And just knowing that there are friends that I have that were defending these people. And, like, you're never going to find them, so why even try? Or, like, these are just empty threats. I'm just like... These are empty threats to, these are threats, I don't know if they're empty or not, to buildings that I love, to buildings that my friends love, and to buildings that my friends are often in, um, especially going to the Black Culture Center. And these are in retaliation to the actions that I'm doing along with other my, other people and my friends. So, like, if what I'm doing is so angering and so frustrating to someone that they want to threaten someone's life, that made me feel like, well, there's people on here that will, that could at any moment their anger could boil up and come off the internet and become a physical thing. And that's something that, that's what kind of unsafe and fear kind of went for me. And so fall of 2015, mm-hmm. you're a senior. Mm-hmm. And slowly things are kind of unraveling at Mizzou from my perspective as an mm-hmm. alum who's kind of watching um, and the first thing, there's something about graduate student health insurance. I'm like, hmm, this is an yeah. issue. And then slowly this conversation about actions on campus and then homecoming happens. Mm-hmm. And so slowly something is happening that's starting to get more attention. Where are you during these moments where students are organizing about administrative decisions, they're doing an action at the homecoming parade? Mm-hmm. Where are you during this whole time? Where am I? I was actually doing self-care slash um, prioritizing myself and doing my McNair research. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I had a lit review due. (laughs) Um, So I had taken a step back um, that semester for the first part of the semester um, to really take care of my future, to really take care of myself, but, like, still supporting my friends. Um, I had been on the front lines all of junior year. What did the front lines of junior year look like? So, Amy for Mike Brown, doing the die-ins, doing the protests, doing the um, demonstrations, the marches around campus. I had been to every single one of them, and was very. I mean, I was very proud of the fact, but I needed my grades to say. And so, and they all they always did them on Thursday, which was the day I like set aside in my planner. So I'm like, I can't keep break. I can't break. Money. Did people pressure you about it or give you any? kind of resistance to like why aren't you joining us um if they did they didn't tell it to my they didn't say it to my face because a lot of people were just like no you gotta handle yourself so there's in the social justice community um at least to people's faces there's a lot of like self-care um talking there's a lot of just backing you up and and you're doing you basically You, you do you um and so that's so I was getting a lot of that from my from my social justice people, but I also had people who knew I was in MU from Mike Brown, and saying why weren't you at this and why weren't I at that? And I was like I was I have my own business to take care of. Like I'm supporting them. I go out if it was any other time, I would go, um, but I had to make sure that I was getting my grades and doing my research, which I was kind of like falling in love with. Mm-hmm. And so. But at some point, things reach a tipping point where everybody is involved. Yes. (laughs) And so take us to the late fall, 2015. Late fall. So so I kind of like, I was in planning meetings for um, 
students one of the coalitions and I was I went to their planning meetings regularly I just didn't wasn't doing anything so come late fall I think it was November 2nd um well after homecoming it was which was like the first weekend of October which was very which is very rare um everyone was starting to get up in a roar and very frustrated. Could you tell our listeners what happened at Mizzou Homecoming? So at Mizzou Homecoming, 11 students um, decided to um, bring attention to Mike Wolf about the injustices that they felt and a lot of other students felt were happening on campus and go through the history of the racial um, just the racial history, the black history of Mizzou, starting with the first students being, the first regular student being admitted in 1950, Gusty Ritual. Um, but it started, but in this um, kind of story, a narrative they were saying, it talked about Gaines Oldham, who, what, who um, petitioned and was had a Supreme Court appeal out, um, who was then taken away from his frat house in Chicago um, and never seen again and just to get into the Mizzou Law School. So there had been a lot of a lot of historical black things that happened to Mizzou just before even black students were even able to get in. And they talked about this and talked about the cotton ball incident um, that happened, uh, I think, in It was was way after my time when someone decided to bring some cotton to the Mm -hmm. Black Altar Center. I think it was 2010 because there was people there when I got there that Mm -hmm. was there when that happened. So it was either 08 or 2010. Um, And only and I think one of the students like transferred before they can get expelled or something or um, not a sufficient enough things happen, and that's when Mizzou Unity. Oh no, that Mizzou Unity Coalition. Um, one Mizzou. One Mizzou. Yes, one Mizzou started, and one Mizzou was, I would say, a failure in a lot of ranks from my junior year, uh, from my sophomore year onwards. It was. It didn't. It wasn't really being as cohesive as it should have been, and. From the and so from there and one Mizzou was completely student run, and people didn't like that the administration or the chancellor wasn't talking about these things, and they got to um, the bombing the bomb threats of last of the year before and the threats of this year um, because Jick Yak and other I forget the other one um, there have been multiple threats and multiple just. Inwards thinking and calling a pain head, um, being called the inward in his Facebook post, and everyone was just fed up and just sick and tired of it. And they wanted, and they wanted to go above the chancellor. They wanted to tell the systems president that these things are happening and what is he doing to do this? Because if the chancellor didn't have sufficient enough power to do, to really fix the system, then they were appealing to him to try to fix the system or at least acknowledge the the. The system being broken or in the things that were happening under basically his roof so that happened and there was no response the crowd started chanting m-i-z-z-o-u which is our school's chant like it's the chant you, you get taught when you're in summer orientation saying this is what you do at football games and all basketball games and i've been in texas and someone has said it and i've said z-o-u mm-hmm. <laughs> um and it and so a chant that's supposed to bring unity to the campus um, was used to drown out black voices. And then his car, and then Tim Wolf's car, inching forward, 
um, not really trying to just like brush past them and him not saying one word um, during this whole conflict, which ended with um, police pushing and shoving these students and women um, out in these in these crowds saying, stop harassing this man and things like that and not getting any support. That's basically what happened at homecoming. And so the response after homecoming um, is, I think, where a lot of the news media came in. And they mm-hmm. started reporting on Mizzou because Jonathan Butler, a student, a graduate student, had decided to stage a um, hunger strike. Mm-hmm. And then students had decided to take over the quad yes. um, and created a tent city. Yes. And so what is it like going to school in the middle of that? Um, I had the best attendance I had. <laughs> so I actually lived in the tent city um, all all but one of the days it was up. How many days was that? Um, it was seven days. It started the Monday that Jonathan Butler started, and then it ended the Monday night, so the Tuesday after. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't sleep in that Saturday because I needed my own bed. <laughs> um, but living in the Tin City, it was kind of interesting because you just noticed... you. You saw building of coalition. You started. I saw a building of the black community and a coming together, and a place where people started really feeling safe and comfortable on campus. I was rarely there in the daytime because I had, because I was kind of one of those people that um, goes everywhere and has a lot of their own personal, not issues, but um, I had a lot of work from schoolwork to my research. Um, but I slept there every night and made sure that the camp was not in flames at night. Um, yeah. And so living there, people, I had people in classes um, saying, like, why is this thing, why don't they take it down? To teachers saying, like, this is a good thing we need to talk about. I knew teachers who held ho- who held office hours at the tents to get their students to come. And so there was a lot of mix, mix and match, and it really kind of displayed the dichotomy of the school and who was at it because there was professors that, um, that saw and that saw and saw that it was a good thing and that it was part of the graduate student workers movement and it was part of all these things com- kind of a culmination of all these things and then there was people that was like let's just not pay any mind which kind of defeats the purpose and it's kind of the whole thing that... and so when when people are watching on CNN and then it becomes an ESPN story because mm-hmm. of the show of solidarity on the part of the football team. What did people miss in the story? Or what elements do you think were not being talked about enough in this story of students occupy school, president resigns? I think it was the element of the common student. And the, com- the student who was just fed up and because there was a lot of attention with the original eleven by design, um, but there was this, there was this mixture of why? Why do so many people feel so frustrated, so much so that they're living outside, that they're um, trying to be become so visible and so salient? There was this lack of acknowledgement of the invisibility that had come before all of this. And that it had to be some national death, like death-inducing incident mm-hmm. that people started becoming visible, and that's I feel was something that was never really seen or shown in the media. Um, and I'm a historian, and I 
like to look at like the just anxiety that everything like some people went over some of the incidents but like there's people who just have anxiety over just going into school and I know people who didn't go back to school after the first year because it was just a lot of pressure on top of just being at school getting grades and having to do this like you have one or two spaces that you can kind of let your guard down not even let your guard down completely but you just have only you just only have a few places to go and that was kind of the things that they missed I felt and so what is it like then where the hunger strike ends the tent city is put up and now it's time to do the work of transformation on the campus Mm -hmm. um how do you feel like the university has negotiated the next steps I'll say this in a couple different. The administration, I feel, has done a decent amount, a decently good part on themselves and trying to hold themselves accountable. I would say there's a lot of students, I feel, that think that they're able, that the administration can move a lot of mountains very quickly. Um, And that is where I kind of stray from their philosophy. Um, The... There was a working group that the that Chuck Hinton had um, brought up, and there was a lot of input in that working group, and there was a lot of kind of talking and movement, um, slow movement, but it was a weekly thing that was weekly progress and being progressed, um, and I think that that was something that needed to be done to lay the foundation for more things um, together. There was a lot of fatigue with students. I can imagine. And. More so with white students. Um, like, we don't want to talk about this. Why don't we? Like, everyone said going home for Thanksgiving, like, they had to go through, like, their family talking about all the thing. And I'm just like, this is, like, the perfect time to talk to your family. Like, if you didn't learn anything, then you wouldn't be so okay with not talking. If you learn something, then you would be okay with talking to your family, like, hey, this is, like, the things that are going on in these campuses, and this is why, what was it, over 250 other campuses or 150 other campuses showing their support. Like, How did that feel when you saw the tweets and the pictures about all the people who were st- standing in solidarity with you guys? I just felt so, that was, like, the most humbling, heart heartwarming um, moment of my life. Like, I... That was just, in, just so just warming. I had to go to the um, the American Association of Anthropology's um, annual meeting the Wednesday after everything had gone down. So the Wednesday after the bomb threats and everything after everything, and they're like, "We're gonna take a picture." And I'm just like, "Oh my god, wow!" Um, and I'm trying to get, and I was like, "Okay, I want to be in this picture. Let me be off to the side." And they're like, "You're from Missouri. <laughs> like, get in the middle." I'm just like, "No, please. I just don't." Like, I'm just so happy that my profession wants to show their support for my school and the actions that the people at my school are doing. And that that was just really humbling and, heart, and just heartwarming. And so one of the things that um, I think is also interesting about being a student at Mizzou at that time is what conversation were you having with your mom? So the one who was getting you hip to how it was going to go down, what did she think of everything? <laughs> Well, she, she was like, are you safe? Are you safe? Yeah. <laughs> Do you need me to send my sorors down there to get you? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mom. I know. <laughs> um, she thought it was, she thought 
it was amazing. She was she thought it was awesome. Um, she went to college right after Title Nine was implemented mm-hmm. and everything, and in the eighties when blacks really started getting into Purdue and all the other big like kind of white colleges. And so she's like she she kind of told said like we were the told us that she was the generation that kind of got all those benefits like finally got those benefits after the civil rights uh, movement and she said that it's it's great to see that you guys are fighting because she taught at um, I, um, Illinois State University and she quit because of a lot of the students complaints and just being a black female professor at that um, institution and not making and making professor's money yeah. um so i think so she was very supportive she was she's just making sure that i was safe honestly well i'm gonna ask you the last question i ask everyone on this podcast mm-hmm. if there's one thing you wish you could have you could say to all your professors what would it be um I would say ask my name for pronunciation first. No, um, I would say just be there for their students. Um, I had I grew a lot of connections with a lot of professors during this time because I saw that they were there for my for them for their students and for me. Um, and the ones that were like were more supportive of it, I gravitated towards them. And I really grew some connections with some very interesting professors that I think I liked at the beginning of the semester. Like, my mom told me to always go to office hours and get my face out there in that seven-hour lecture. So I've always gone to my professor's office hours. But I really grew personally um, with some of my professors. And so just being there for their students, even if you're not exactly sure how to be. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was a great conversation. Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marcia Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Visit Office Hours on the web at www.officehoursapodcast.com, on Twitter at Office Hours Pod, on Instagram at Office Hours Podcast, on Facebook at Office Hours, a podcast. Tune in each week on iTunes and Acast.